Number 7. Psalms, First Quarter, 2024. John Pauline. Wherever you are in the world, welcome to Pine Knoll for the seventh in the series of our studies of Psalms. The title of our study today is Your Mercy Reaches Under the Heavens and will be led by Dr. John Pauline. But first, Jane, who hails from Kenya, is going to lead us in prayer. Kind and loving Father, in the mighty name of Jesus, we come before you this Sabbath morning. We want to thank you. We adore you, Lord. We praise your holy name. We thank you, Lord, because you've given us an opportunity to come together, Lord, and behold your mercies. Indeed, your mercies reach unto the heavens. Your compassions, they fail not. They are new every morning. And we are delighted as Pinal family today to share thy mercy by reading thy word in the book of Psalms. Lord, we thank you for our facilitator, Professor John Pauline. We pray that you may guide him. We invite your presence, Lord, in our midst, O oh God. And as we discuss this topic, O oh God, how I pray that we may experience your mercy in a new way. Forgive us our trespasses, O oh dear God. And may our discussions today be a blessing to us, O oh God. May they be fulfilling. And anywhere this voice reaches in the ends of the earth, O oh God, may glory and honor come back to thee, dear God. This is our sincere prayer this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, Jane mentioned the key word in her prayer, and that is mercy. And it's interesting, this is the seventh in a series on the Psalms, and the lesson author, to me at least, coined a new type of psalm, and she calls them mercy psalms. And I'd not heard that one before. I'd heard of psalms of confession, which include Psalm 51, that's part of this, and I've also heard of psalms of praise, and it's kind of combining those together into a fresh approach. But the overall theme is a contrast between the greatness of God and the frailty of humanity. Human beings have nothing in themselves that would recommend them before God. They are fully dependent on God's mercy. So these Psalms celebrate the fact that God's mercy is everlasting. In other words, if human beings are frail, if they can do nothing of themselves, and if God is the source of all their power, then for God to be a God of mercy, I think, is an amazing and very encouraging thing. So that's sort of the direction that we're going in this particular lesson. And we'll start with number two in your handout, Psalm 136. And this psalm invites God's people to praise the Lord for his mercy. And it asks, on what grounds are they invited to praise God? So, Terry, we're not going to read the entire psalm immediately. I think this one will be helpful to go section by section, and I'll let you know as we move forward. But let's begin with Psalm 136 and verses 1 to 3. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Oh, give thanks to the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures forever. Oh, give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his steadfast love endures forever. All right, so this is one of those psalms where you get like a chorus, every verse, and they're very short verses, and then you have a chorus, his steadfast love, his mercy however one wants to translate the Hebrew term, it lasts forever. So the fact that God is not merciful for now, or he's not merciful now and then, but mercy is inherent in who God is. That, I think, is a very, very significant aspect of the psalm. Now, I want to point out something to you. It says in the very second verse, Give thanks to the God of gods. And then it says, give thanks to the Lord of lords. What does that tell you? When it says he is a God of gods, why does it use that language? How is that different from the New Testament, for example? 
we often glaze over things in scripture. It may say Yahweh, it may then say God, it may say the Almighty One, and et cetera, et cetera. There's different terms, but it's important to, I think, stop in and actually probe what each of those means. It's usually a purpose. All right, so we'll start out with Lou. Uh, to me, it means he is the supreme God. No matter what other gods have shown up through human history, what other gods people uh, we might serve in our daily lives, in a sense, he is the supreme God, and he never changes. He's the God of gods. He is the supreme being. Mm -hmm. So you're sort of expanding the gods part to be kind of everything, right? That's how I understand yeah. you saying yeah. that mm -hmm. anything that could possibly be a, quote, God to us, he's greater than that. And I right. think that's a beautiful application. Aaron? You already mentioned the term the most high. So whatever height you think that the local deities have, we live in a very different day and age where we don't think of local deities, whereas back in the time this is being written, there's all kinds of gods everywhere. And so this is the most high. Just skip all the lower levels and just go to the top. You're going to go to God. So that's kind of a context there. Yeah. Well, Aaron, just to, to point out, sometimes a teacher asks a question that the teacher knows the answer to. And then you say, well, isn't it kind of dumb to ask a question when you already know the answer? Well, the point is that there's value in teaching for students before they hear the answer to think through what the possibilities are, to wrestle with it. And it really prepares your mind to go deep when you do hear the answer. So that's sort of my purpose here. But you've taken us a step further. I think Lou gave us a beautiful application of this, but you've gone back into the original context and said, so, well, back then there's kind of gods in the bushes and behind the trees and so on. So it's in that context you're hearing this text. And I think that's helpful. Rita? I'm going to say a similar thing, is that at that time, the Israelites were in an environment where there were very many gods worshipped around them. And indeed, they were probably tempted. And I think also that they did have lesser gods. God allowed them to have these other gods. I think perhaps in order to help them understand what he was, that he was the same but different. He was better. He was the one who all the other gods that they worshipped would have to be subservient to. And it was about encouraging them to recognise that Yahweh, God, is above everything and, in fact, actually should only be the only one. Okay, I hear you wrestling there, and I like that very much, trying to make sense of this. And it's a very different world today. But I think if we really make sense of what was happening here, it can also help us to understand ourselves and our own world as well. Ginger? It is a very different world, and my comment follows along with the previous two. But actually, from the point of view from my work in Asia, in which it is not a very different world, every piece of land has a god. In the Middle East, in those times, every piece of land had a god. So then you get into this, my dad is stronger than your dad, or my dad is bigger than your dad. And if we win, it's because mine was better. I have been a bit taken aback to hear some explanations now of the many Hindu gods and other gods that are in Asia as just being aspects of one god. So then there's a claim that actually we're monotheistic, but we see different aspects of God, and that's the reason for all our gods. And I have a really hard time believing that because people attach to a particular one and they ascribe certain qualities to that one and make it better than the other one. And so when I hear that this is the God of gods, I hear it through the ears of this is the one true God in a place where every piece of land has its own God and we have a shrine on every piece of land. All right. That takes us another step, I think, of the idea of perhaps territorial gods. And we'll explore the degree to which that was also significant in the ancient world. I'm fascinated by your Asian perspective here that the idea of territorial gods is still alive and well in places today. 
Uh, Jane, you give us an African perspective. So let's see where that takes us. I may not have an African one, but in that, I'll go with ginger. We still have our shrines and there are still those people who traditionally believe in their African gods and so powerfully so. But in the context of what we are talking about today, I want to just add to what my colleagues have already said, that the God of gods, to me, means the creator, that these other gods are here, but they do not have the creative power that the God of gods has. And the Lord of lords, to me, implies supreme authority as we are going to see in the upcoming verses, because it's all displayed in the creation and in his authority, and he does what no other can do. This makes me think about when Paul went to where they were not believers, and he saw an altar that said to the unknown God. I love that story. And he took off right from there to introduce them to the true God, but they were searching to the unknown God. So they knew there was a God and he was able to build on that. I just love that story. It's just beautiful. All right, Livius, do you want to give it another try? In addition to what everyone else has said, is this an allusion to Deuteronomy chapter 10? Because it uses this phrase in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17, for the Lord your God is a God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who's not partial and takes no bribe. And all around this verse in Deuteronomy 10, it really talks about circumcising your heart. So is this a pointer to get to the heart of the matter, if you will? And in Psalm 136, there's a lot of Deuteronomy chapter 10 in here. Mm. Very, very helpful suggestion. I hadn't looked at that comparison, but it doesn't surprise me. I think you'll find a lot of texts like this in the Old Testament. Let's go just a little brief history of religions. When you get into the history of religions, probably the most significant piece is the axial period, so-called, in the history of religions. And the axial period was a period around 500 years before Christ. It was the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. It was the time of Zoroaster. It was the time of Buddha. It was the time of Confucius and Lao Tse. So you had, at that time, a very significant worldwide shift in religions. Before that time, most people thought in terms of territorial gods, such as Ginger had been mentioning. Still, you'll find places like that today. But that was the norm, territorial gods. So you had the gods of Babylon and the gods of Egypt, and the god of Israel, and the god of the Philistines. Sometimes Yahweh was called the god of the hills. That's why they built the high places. The higher you get, the more power Yahweh has. You see, And you see glimpses of that in the Old Testament, even though it's moving us in a different direction. After the axial period, and as you get toward New Testament times, the world shifted from territorial gods to universal gods. The idea that the God I worship is the God of everything. You see, so Yahweh is clearly the God of the entire world and the entire universe, if you will, when you get to New Testament times. So you can see evidence of that shift within the Bible. And it's interesting that this God of gods is kind of a transition between the two. Yahweh's more than just God of Israel, God of the hills, the hill God. Yahweh is the God of everything, including all the other nations and their gods, that he is the supreme God. And it's interesting that when pagans in the Bible refer to Yahweh, it's usually as the most high God. Melchizedek was the priest of the most high God. Nebuchadnezzar says, You know, now I extol and worship the Most High God. So there you still have the concession of the territorial gods, but now you have a superior God uh, over all of these. So it's interesting that God, the God that we love, the God that we seek to understand in this class, is a God that can tolerate a lot of things on the way to something better. That God worked with people where they were, and often gave them 
insights into himself that would fit into the mindset and the world in which they lived. So here in this psalm, you see one of these transitional comments, God of gods, Lord of lords. Let's continue to verses four through nine. This is Psalm 136 still. Who alone does great wonders for his steadfast love endures forever? Who by understanding made the heavens for his steadfast love endures forever? Who spread out the earth on the waters for his steadfast love endures forever? Who made the great lights for his steadfast love endures forever? The sun to rule over the day for his steadfast love endures forever. The moon and stars to rule over the night for his steadfast love endures forever. So here you see in all of these verses, it's praising God as the Lord of creation. And the earliest indicator, perhaps, in the scriptures that the view of God there is different from the national gods is the fact that at the beginning of the Hebrew Bible, you have the story of creation. And it's not the creation of Israel. It's the creation of the entire world. So Yahweh, right from the beginning, is seen as something way beyond uh, that which is just national gods. But uh, nevertheless, Yahweh works within the mindset and, and the understanding of the people. But here they are praising him as the God of creation. Let's go to verses 10 to 15. Who struck Egypt through the firstborn, for his steadfast love endures forever, and brought Israel out from among them, for his steadfast love endures forever, with a strong hand and an outstretched arm, for his steadfast love endures forever, who divided the Red Sea in two, for his steadfast love endures forever, and made Israel pass through the midst of it, for his steadfast love endures forever, but overthrew Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea, for his steadfast love endures forever. Okay, this is repetitious from our Western perspective, even can be a little boring at times. But what's the message there? The message is that in every detail of Israel's history, they could see the merciful kindness, love, steadfast love, the hesed, the Hebrew term, that endures forever. God's forever favor toward us is illustrated in every single detail of Israel's history. Let's read one more verse, and then Henry will call on you. Verse 16. Who led his people through the wilderness, for his steadfast love endures forever. Okay, so there you see, going beyond the Exodus now, into their experience in the wilderness, God's steadfast love was there also. Henry. Question. Could this psalm be an example that this literature was not universal or was not intended for everybody to enjoy, rejoice on it? That it was created, written, inspired for the Jewish people? Because other than that, it'll be very difficult for an Egyptian to learn and love the forever, the loving, endurance uh, God forever when their firstborns were the ones that were struck, not anybody else's. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the good news for the Egyptians is that there are some Egyptian psalms in the canon, and there's even a Canaanite psalm, Psalm 29. It's set in Lebanon which was the heart of the Canaanites after the Israelites took over Canaan. Lebanon was kind of the centerpiece of what the Canaanites had left. And it talks about a thunderstorm coming over the cedars of Lebanon. And so the scholars are pretty confident that that was adopted from Canaanite music into the Israelite canon. And you have some Egyptian influence in other places and so on. So God takes people where they are, accepts their worship, encourages them to express their praise in language that makes sense to them. Go ahead, Henry, follow up on that. Yes, and the reason of my comment is that so many times we Christians try to take uh, Scripture as prescriptive, 
that everybody should be seeing the same thing that I'm seeing. But in this case, it's obviously specifically for the Jewish people. And with your example of this psalm, that means that then not everything is supposed to be fitting exactly on everybody's. And I need to understand exactly the context, the reason, who was the intended people to receive it, and the reason why. And not necessarily make it prescriptive for everybody. Hmm. Is the Bible filled with prescriptive details that if we follow every single one, we're going to be fine? Or is the Bible a record of God's dealing with humanity? And I think Henry's tipping toward the other side, and I would agree with that assessment of Scripture. And it affects the way we read it. If you read it as prescriptive, you can end up with some very strange things. For example, George Knight used to use this idea. Imagine that a group of people, they're on both sides of the river, okay? And God wants to get them to the island at the center. What would he have to do? Give them opposite advice, you see? And if the people on one side, instead of reading, you know, go west, <laughs> they went east because they read the other <laughs> instruction from God, they wouldn't get where God wanted them to be. So we do need to use our own wrestling with the context and its proper application. And generally, that's more safely done in groups like we're doing here. So that's why we do this. All right, Rita. I'm wondering whether this psalm, as Henry said, is specifically for the Israelites. And I'm wondering if it was written for them at a time when they were really doubting God. I'm wondering what on earth their position was. And that this psalm is to remind them of what God has done for them, what he has done, where they were, where he has brought them from. And therefore, he's loving them all the time, despite them being in a difficult situation at that moment in time. I like what you're saying, and it brings me to something that one would want to mention in the context of these psalms, and that is the essence of Hebrew worship was not instructions for behavior, was not some sort of being upbraided, you know, being yelled at. For them, worship was recounting what God had done in the past. And that's what this psalm is doing. It's taking Israel's history piece by piece and saying, God was with you every step of the way. And what's the logical conclusion? God is still with you today. And you can walk forward with courage as a result of that. All right, Darla. I just find it fascinating that. It's talking about all the powerful things that God has done. And yet the chorus is his love endures forever. Or in the Message Bible, his love never quits. It seems like everybody had bragging rights of who had the most powerful God and how many gods were known to be loving. So I think that's very striking here that we're talking about all these wonderful things God did, but his love endures forever. His love never quits. So that raises the question, why do we need to focus on that? You know, if you think of the front page of Pine Null, it's the confession that God is infinitely powerful and equally gracious. And you get both of those here in the psalm. In fact, contrasting back and forth the powerful things God did for them, and then his mercy and kindness lives forever. So you see that the two being balanced together. But the question that comes to mind is, why do we need such a strong focus on God's power? I mean, doesn't everybody know God is powerful? Don't even the pagans know that God is powerful? He made the world, and he's powerful. But I think there's a practical purpose here. When we look at the world, when we really focus at the world around us, it's easy to think that in spite of all that, God is weak. Because we see all the troubles in the world. We see all the crazy things that are going on. We see all the disasters, you know, excessive heat, storms, hurricanes, earthquakes, etc. We look at all of that, and it's possible for someone absorbed in reality to think that God is weak. And so, focusing on the evidence of God's power in very practical ways, is able to give us encouragement 
to hang on when things look tough. Because God looks weak, we need to be grounded in the scriptures that say, in spite of what you see, God is not weak. Let's review the various ways in which God has acted mightily in the course of history. Remind us that what we see with our eyes isn't necessarily the ultimate reality. Oh, thank you for tipping us in that direction. Uh, go ahead, Ginger. I just wanted to make a comment that in African-American gospel singing, they do a lot of this with the refrain coming back over and over for it to drill into your soul. So it's really fun to see it in this psalm. And the other comment is that if you read the psalm through fully, it starts with the God as creator and then God intervening in other countries, which would have been other gods. So saying that our God is stronger. And then in the ending, talking about even in difficult times, God is faithful. And I'm thinking this morning about my Bible study in Second Chronicles 16, where King Asa reaches out and gets the king of the north, I think Lebanon, to make a change of his treaty from Israel to Judah. And then a, a prophet comes along and tells him off because he didn't leave it up to God to save him in this situation as he did in an earlier situation. And so my really honest heart question this morning is thinking about the issues, the difficulties that we face. And when we try to fix those difficulties or address those difficulties, King Asa got told off for doing that rather than leaving it up to God to fix. And so where is that tipping point of God is faithful to you forever? stand back and watch him work versus see where you can intervene and change treaties or whatever it is to advantage your country or your organization. Mm -hmm. Very well expressed. Very challenging. We could easily spend the next hour on exactly that. But on the one side, it's let go and let God. And on the other side is God helps those who help themselves. <laughs> and what do we do with that? It's perhaps kind of like getting everybody to the island and wading through different instructions, applying to different locations, etc. So I think that makes it clear that God has given us reason. He's given us choice. And we need to wrestle with that. There's no one size fits all. It means that if your religion is a sheet of specifications with a signature line at the bottom, you don't understand scripture and you don't understand God. And it's so easy for us to fall into that because it's convenient. It's comfortable. Yeah, my life is all laid out. It's all clear. I know exactly what I need to do. That isn't reality, though. That's an ideal fantasy. And the reality is we have tough decisions to make. The reality is when I looked at the life of Christ and then was made a dean, Ginger, hopefully you'll appreciate this. I, how do I do that? How do I apply the mercy and kindness of God when people need to be slapped upside the head sometimes? You know, and leadership is more than just being a nice person. You know, leadership is very difficult decisions to know when to do that. I suspect Daniel has gotten that double fold in the last few months. Leadership is difficult. Just being a Christian is difficult. And it requires careful wrestling and thinking and working one's way through things. So, yeah, Ginger, you've raised a question that could be answered forever or not answered at all. And simply, let's just experience what happens when we try this or try that. So you see the characters in the Bible trying out different things and getting good results sometimes and not so good. We have to do a little bit of that. We say, well, God's given the opposite advice here that depending on circumstance, in this circumstance, let me try this and see how it works. And God is so gracious and forgiving that when you make the wrong choice, there's always the path back to learn and to grow. So the other day, my son got scammed, not a huge thing, just one of these online things, bought some tickets to a tourist attraction and then discovered it wasn't the official site. It was some scam site. And he never saw the tickets or his money again. And, you know, what do I do, Dad? And I just said, Joel, count it as tuition. You just learned a very important life lesson. And you paid the tuition and now you can move on. And in a bigger thing in the future, you won't have to pay that tuition because you have that experience. Yeah. That's what I see the Bible being all about. You see 
these characters, imperfect characters, wrestling to understand God, wrestling to apply God in various circumstances, and sometimes doing well and sometimes not so well. Henry. I appreciate your comments in regards to the difficulty that we sometimes perceive on saying, is this a Christian-like response, right? When somebody needs something more than just a hug, we do it with our children as well. How do I show love to my children when they are not doing the right thing and I cannot just give them a kiss and say, well done? But to me, how can I see it of this psalm is that the refrain, the repetitiveness is not on the power itself, on the demonstration of power, but repetitiveness is on his love endures forever. And sometimes we focus on the powerful element before, but I think that the reason why the psalmist is saying this is because I want you to see that all of this that he did, creation and all of that, he didn't do it to show his power, but to demonstrate his love. Because he did it for a purpose. And he didn't do it to show up how big and how mighty he was, but to show how big and how mighty his love is. And I don't want to spoil the rest of the reading of this psalm, but the verse 23 speaks about that as well. Mm-hmm. This is an element when the Israelites are in a low moment. And he says, and the psalm ends up even, he loves us when we were low, in a low state. And the fact that he was with them through the desert, there was no other reason just because they didn't believe in him. Mm-hmm. And he still stayed with them for 40 years in the desert camping with them, not even up there from heaven, but camping with them for 40 years because his love endures forever. So maybe the emphasis is not on the power of that we always think, but on the love that endures forever. I love it, Henry. Thank you so much for that inspirational thought. All right, let's continue now. We have verses 17 to 22, Psalm 136 still. Who struck down great kings, for his love endures forever, and killed famous kings, for his love endures forever. Sihon, king of the Amorites, for his love endures forever, and Og, king of Bashan, for his love endures forever, and gave their land as a heritage, for his love endures forever, a heritage to his servant Israel, for his love endures forever. All right, and you clearly recognize here, this is the conquest. So you've gone from creation to the exodus, to the wilderness, to the conquest, working your way through history and through it all, his chesed, his steadfast, relentless love endures forever. But now it turns a little bit, verses 23 to 25. It is he who remembered us in our low estate for his steadfast love endures forever, and rescued us from our foes, for his love endures forever, who gives food to all flesh, for his steadfast love endures forever. It kind of moved from past tense to present tense here, and also a bit more personal experience, the food that we need, the lifting up when we're depressed, you know, the cast down here. So when you're depressed, when you're hungry, when there's somebody nearby that's tormenting you, that's the context in which all of that history now applies. You have a God who's more powerful than your enemies, more powerful than those who doubt you. If God is on your side, it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks. I've come to realize through the years That's one of the biggest barriers in many Christians' lives, that they are frozen in their actions, etc., because they're afraid of what other people will think, whether it's parents, whether it's church leaders, whether it's theological opponents, scholars, whatever. You're afraid of what other people will think if you say or do whatever. And the bottom line of this psalm, if God is on your side, it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks. If God accepts you and his mercy (laughs) accepts you, no question about it. If God accepts you, if you're okay with God, it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks. 
And I think learning to be unfazed at times is a real important part of Christian maturity. There's a statement in Desire of Ages. I didn't dig it out because I wasn't thinking I would say it today. But that Jesus was neither elated by applause nor downcast by censure. So there's a certain sense that when you have your security in God, you don't need the affirmation of others in order to have stability, security, your own place in God's kingdom. And I think that's such a practical thing because we often waste a lot of time worrying about potential consequences for things we haven't said or done yet. And even for things we have said or done, worrying about what other people thought of that is a waste of time in the Christian context. Let's go on to number three, where it says, read Psalm 51, 1 to 5. Why in this passage does the psalmist appeal to God's mercy? And in what sense is it appropriate for him to say that his heinous crimes against Bathsheba and her husband were committed against God alone? A fascinating comment that is made in this psalm. Before we do that, though, let's hear from Daniel. Yes, John, I thought that before we go on, it's important to notice that you have Psalm 135 and then 136, where you have this tap-thumping celebration of God's victory over the kings. Notice, just like the creation, Yahweh, God did it all alone, so no mentioning of Joshua or anything else. And everybody said home, Now, I know that as good Adventists, most of the audience will not be able to relate to this, but this reminds me of the song that the boys sing after a winning match on a bus going home. And then you have Psalm 137, and you need to put it together, the unrelieved sorrow and the weeping by the waters of Babylon. And it's an important part that life can be like Psalm 136. And there are times in life when you feel like, oh, I can't sing the song of Yahweh in the foreign land because everything is not going the way I want it. And these are the important aspects of the Christian experience or psalmist experience, the ups and downs, the already and the not yet. So I thought that would be good to remind ourselves of this before we go to Psalm 51. That's beautifully expressed, Daniel, and we look forward to lessons 8 through 13 of this series where Daniel will be leading out, and it sounds like it's going to be great moving forward, so stay with it. All right, Psalm 51, 1 to 5. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified in your sentence and blameless when you pass judgment. Indeed, I was born guilty, a sinner when my mother conceived me. All right. Let's focus in on that one piece here. Now, obviously, you know the context. This is the story of David, Bathsheba, Uriah. And in the wake of that, it took a while for David to realize the full depth of what he had done. And this psalm is written when it just absolutely hit him in the face, when he was just overwhelmed with how badly he had handled the situation. And so that's the context of this song. And the big question then becomes, he says, against you and you only have I sinned. Now, that's that's kind of a bombshell because I think Bathsheba didn't fare so well. And certainly her husband, you know, that was the ultimate sacrifice. So how do you come away from people being so badly hurt and saying, against you and you only have I sinned. What's going on there? And Ginger, if you're not ready to respond to that, just go ahead and tell us what's in your heart. Well, I am itching to respond to that because every time I read this text, it makes me really mad. But I have noticed over time that people are super good at deceiving themselves about the depth and breadth of hurt caused by their sins. And my personal opinion is David still didn't get it. 
he was on his way to getting it, but he didn't get it when he said against you and you only. Many times people give half apologies for what they've done because they recognize an apology is due, but they're not willing to own the whole hurt. And it wasn't just Bathsheba and it wasn't just Uriah. There was the child that died and there was Solomon and the fallout for him. And there was the hurt to the nation who all knew what he had done. So I just think it's David sort of deluding himself about the breadth of hurt that he had caused. Fascinating, because that ties back to the hermeneutical discussion we had earlier. If you see the exact detail of this psalm as being exactly the way that David should have handled it, then what you just said freaks everybody out super big, you see. But if you see the Bible as God interacting with fallible people, who sometimes pray for babies to be dashed against the wall, Psalm 137, then it's the possible at least. I'm not sure if I buy it, Ginger. I'm going to think that through a little bit further. But intriguing suggestion that David's on his way to total repentance, but doesn't yet quite see the full depth of the hurt that he has done to others. So I like that suggestion. I think that's worth our careful consideration. All right, Rita? I look at it in a bit of a different way. And I'm just wondering whether the result of Nathan coming to him, David has sort of sat down and kind of done a root cause analysis. Why did I do this? Why did I do that? Why, why, why? Going back and back and back. And ultimately come to the conclusion that the reason he did all of these things was that he had turned his back on God. And that was the real sin. If he hadn't done that, then none of that would have happened. All right. This is rich discussion. You see, this is taking us beyond just teaching. It's a class wrestling with deep things and seeing possibilities that many of us would not see. All right. Livius. I want to maybe suggest a totally different idea here. And I wonder, and I only say this because I was in a Bible study last night where we talked about Samuel and how Israel wanted a king. And I'm wondering if if David here realizes his responsibility. Israel has asked for a king, and God said, yeah, give him all these kinds of warnings, and it didn't work out so well with Saul. And so with respect to the idea, to this question that you had, why is it only against God that he has sinned? I wonder if David is thinking that he's representing God here, because God used to be their king. He was their king and they had judges. And now, now they have this king to rule over them. And so it kind of takes the place of God, if you will. So I'm wondering if David is kind of realizing that responsibility and that role. And that's why he's so repentant and having this reaction here. Yeah, I'm feeling a little bit like Tevye and Fiddler on the Roof, where he hears three contradictory opinions and agrees with them all. You've all been so persuasive, really powerful, and that's the best kind of discussion to truly get us beyond the surface. I think David knew the full ramifications. It'd be pretty nearsighted not to be able to see that. But even if he had, and I don't think it would have been possible, but even if he had been able to rectify all the implications and all the other aspects of all these Bathsheba and the child that died and Uriah and all that. But if he did not somehow solve the problem with his relationship to God, that would have meant nothing. Ultimately, it's our relationship with God that's important. I think what he was trying to emphasize that that is what ultimately is important and that he was trying or at least expressing his feelings about that, yes, if we don't make it right with God, everything else is irrelevant. And I think he was either consciously or subconsciously trying to state what really, really is most important. And that this was his way of saying that only God was the one that was involved in this issue. Really like what all of you have been saying and certainly giving me reason to think. I would take it one step further. We have thought about Bathsheba's reputation. We've thought about Uriah's reputation. We've thought about Israel's reputation. I think some of you hinted at this, but beyond that is God's reputation. Even if you go with the territorial gods, people are going to judge the God of Israel 
through the behavior of Israel. Those two are linked. And so ultimately what David did was a stain on God's character and on God's reputation. And it's in that sense, perhaps, that it would be appropriate for him to say, against you alone I have sinned, because that's the ultimate one. If God's reputation is damaged, then people are lost for eternity. If Israel's reputation is damaged, that can be recovered, you know, in the next king or the next battle or, or whatever. So uh, I personally, Ginger, I personally find, and you may be absolutely right, but I personally find I have an easier time seeing that I've hurt somebody else than truly hurt God, because God is not there physically. God is not right before my eyes in the way that other people are. And to recognize, you know, that's why we have classes like this, that we would have more of an understanding of God and what matters about God. So I think one way to read this text is that David had already gone through the repentance for Bathsheba and Uriah and his country, etc., and was now realizing that beyond that, there was an even deeper sin that was taking place. So anyway, great discussion, and we will hold open the ultimate conclusion of that, which one day I trust we will find out. But I think Ginger's right on point that very often Christians particularly have a tendency to just sort of have their thing with God and let other people go in the trash and not worry about it too much. And the Old Testament and the New both suggest that our love for God is illustrated by how we treat other people or our lack of love for God. So to simply have things right with God and don't do anything for anybody else, that is unacceptable in both Old and New Testaments. One little side note here. In verse 5, you'll find a multitude of translations for that. And the NRSV suggested that it is David's, David who was born in sin. And that's a way that you can read the Hebrew. Most Hebrew scholars, though, today are thinking that it probably indicates that David was an illegitimate son, that his father had an affair outside of the immediate family. And that's the reason why David was so hated by his eldest brother and was banished to the sheepfold, wasn't even brought in when Samuel said, one of your sons, God sent me to anoint one of your sons. And David isn't even considered as an option. So that would give us an insight into David's personal history. He must have gotten a lot of flack from the neighbor kids growing up. He got a lot of flack from his brothers growing up trying to find a place in Israelite society. If you're not connected to a landowner, you really have no place in society. So David was an outcast, and it's amazing that God would choose him to be a king. And you can imagine the training <laughs> that he had to go through to undo all the things that he learned as a child. And I suspect Jonathan helped with that a lot because he knew what was needed to be a king, and David did not. And so you see the long way that God brought him. We'll skip over the rest of Psalm 51, but in poetry, it gives you a variety of definitions of sin and forgiveness. Very valuable conclusion to the psalm. But let's go on to number four, Psalm 130, and then we'll focus in on another element of that. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you, so that you may be revered. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than those who watch for the morning, more than those who watch for the morning. O Israel, Hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is great power to redeem. It is he who will redeem Israel from all its iniquities. All right, so here you find another powerful psalm about God's mercy, but also about God's great power, that the two go together. But there's a little piece in here that I really want to zero in on, since many of these psalms are similar emotional psalms giving the same basic message. I'm always looking for what's the little twist here 
it might take us a step further. And I see that in verses three and four. If thou, Lord, shouldest keep account of sins, who, O Lord, could hold up his head? But in thee is forgiveness, and therefore thou art revered. In the Hebrew, it says, if you marked iniquities, there would be no forgiveness for me. So somehow marking iniquities is the opposite of forgiveness. Another way to translate is keep score of wrongs. You know anybody who does that? Keep score of wrongs, usually yours, right? Not theirs. <laughs> One of my favorite teachers once said that love is not an archaeologist forever digging up the sins of the past. So marking iniquities is the idea of keeping record, writing it down, throwing it in your face, you see. But God does not mark iniquities. In other words, while Satan will throw the past in your face, God never will. And I wrestled with this as I was preparing the last couple of weeks and saying, well, wait a minute, doesn't God mark iniquities? Isn't there a judgment? Aren't there books that are loaded with detail? Hmm? Isn't there at some point a biography in which we get to see all the sordid history and all the mistakes and understand how it happened and what God had done to save us from all of that? So I found a little bit of tension there, and here's the way I resolved it. And it was in this, God knows it all. God's mind contains a record of all these things. But what it's saying here is he's not going to throw it in your face. He knows all that. He knows better than you do everything you've messed up in your life. And he'll never throw it in your face. Satan does that. If you're ever discouraged about mistakes you have made, that's Satan. God only brings a knowledge of sin in order to also provide encouragement through forgiveness and the power of the Holy Spirit. So discouraging litanies of past wrongs, that's the work of Satan. He's got a list too. He loves marking iniquities. But the psalmist here is saying that God will may know even better than you all the reasons you have for being discouraged or depressed. But God will never throw them in your face. And for the sake of time, I thought it would be fun just to summarize that before we continue on. And number five, it contrasts two psalms, Psalm 113 and Psalm 123. And for sake of time, let me just summarize those. They both focus on mercy, and they both focus on human frailty. And as I get older, I become more aware of frailty. The superstar athlete has a hard time understanding human frailty. But we all, if we live long enough, will come to a time of frailty when we know for a fact what God knows all along. Humanity is frail. And so mercy, steadfast love, these are things we desperately need. And in Psalm 123, it focuses on God's mercy from a human perspective, how it impacts human beings. In Psalm 113, it is from God's perspective, the interaction within God between his power and his mercy. So I think that it was nice the way the lesson put those two psalms together, saying the same message, but one was a human perspective, and the other was God's perspective. So I think that was helpful. Given the time, let me go to a concluding discussion that I think we've had some really good discussions in the last hour. So I'm looking forward to this one as well. One of the key lessons in this particular study is worshiping of God. We mentioned that worship is reciting what God has done. That's the Old Testament definition. And we are all to worship God. Sometimes God invites worship. Sometimes he commands worship. All right. But I don't know about you. This has always troubled me just a little bit. Why does God make such a big deal about worshiping him? If I were in his place, 
That would be an ego trip. All right, guys, I'm waiting. Let's hear it. You know, come on. Some real good praise here. Let's have it. I'm feeling a little down today, so give it to me. Lift me up. So it kind of, you know, makes me wonder, what's the point? What does it say about God that he needs to be worshipped all the time? What does it say about us? Any thoughts? All right, Henry. Yeah, I don't think that God needs it. He is God. He was God even before he began creation. So his status doesn't get better or lower, depending on the number of people that joins the worship service. He does it because we are transformed by where we put, what's the object of our love or admiration. And he knows how bad we are, how far are we from him, how far are we from life, that he has given us the medicine. Come and look at me and be saved, all of the inhabitants of the earth. So we can look at him and if we like what we see, we probably would like to be like him. That's the medicine to me. Mm. Okay, so I hear your focus being worship is something we need. Perhaps it's a bit like intercession. It may not be something that's necessary, but it's something that we need and God provides it. Worship something we need, so God provides it. All right, Bob, Kern. Yeah, kind of building on what Henry just said, God doesn't really need us to worship him. We need to worship him. And I think God kind of puts something in us. We're designed this way that we're going to worship something. And I think God wants us to worship him because that's the only thing that's going to improve us. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you for that. Again, underlining the idea that it's important for us. Anything more to say on that? Terry? I'm wondering if it comes back to the very first accusation that God doesn't love us. When we started this study, we started in Psalms, what was it, 136, where it repeated God's steadfast love endures forever. And I was thinking at that time that, well, I first thought of the Garden of Eden, the serpent's accusation to Eve was, did God really say, isn't he holding something good away from you? In other words, God doesn't love you enough to give you the good things. But then I thought, you know what, it even started before that. In heaven, when Satan went to the angels and said, God's law is a bad thing. This isn't good for you. And then it's like a wave that overtakes you and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And to some extent, we've all bought into this lie that God doesn't love us. And if what you say about the Hebrew worship, that worship in the Old Testament was a recounting of what God has done for us, isn't that to reorient us to what the real truth is? Excellent. I think you're all, as we used to say in the childhood game, you're getting warmer and warmer. So keep it coming. Rita. I think God does need us to worship him. It seems to me that we always think that God is in need of nothing. But God is not complete without us. And us worshiping him can give him that sense of completeness. It's like if somebody loves us, we need people to love us for us to feel complete, not just us giving the love away. It has to be returned. And God in creation made man in his image, the image in the Garden of Eden, to be worshipped and for us to worship him back. It's a two-way thing. We need to worship him, but he needs us to worship him. He needs us. Christ might be the head, but a head without a body is of no use. All right. Yeah. A very popular view through the centuries, a view of God is that God is impassable. That's the term theologians use for it. That means that God is not subject to feelings the way we are. He's kind of above all that. And the quotation, Jesus was neither elated by applause nor downcast by censure. That's a facet there. There's a something there to say that God is not going to treat you differently because of the way you treated him, that he's above resentment, etc. At the same time, Scripture does suggest that God has deep feelings. 
and that what we say matters to him, what we do matters to him. So interesting, interesting thought as we wrestle further with this. Larry? I like the comment you make about what we do matters to God. I also like how Abraham Heschel develops the idea of worship. And in his view, that Hebrew concept of worship is to hold in awe. Not like what we do when we go to church and sing songs. And that's an act of worship, but that in and of itself probably isn't the worship that Abraham Heschel is unpacking with the idea of holding God in awe. And I'm reminded of Christ's comment that unless you become in your thinking like small children, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. And small children hold miraculous things in awe. And so is there a way that that's all being tied together with these concepts of that we hold God in awe and by that we become changed and that makes God happy because we've now become changed and then the cycle continues. I think it's a continuum concept. All right. Really appreciate that. Rusty. God created us with free will, choice, and we're like a programmable creature by our choices. And so obviously God's the ultimate. And when we worship him, in a sense, we're choosing that programming as we're growing and thriving in this relationship with God, we're becoming more and more like him. Without worship, that would never happen. So worship, in a sense, to me, is like an opportunity for growth. And God created our brain and our nature to be able to either thrive like that or obviously like what Lucifer did. That's what I'm thinking. Mm -hmm. All right. Thank you. Olivius? I think that Psalm 136, this highlighting of his steadfast love and how it endures forever, I see it as really critical. And it's really along the lines of what. Rita mentioned that God needs us, and he needs us in this way. Love is an other-centered idea, other-centered principles. If you think of the process that was started, for God so loved the world that he gave, and then Jesus said, before I go, I will leave you another helper. He will take what is mine and reveal it to you. So Jesus gave us the Holy Spirit. God gave us his son, his son gave us the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit works to convict and transform our minds so that we become like God and return what God has given back to him. So we kind of complete the cycle, this process of an ever-enduring love cycle of giving. And I think that God needs us in this process. God is defined by this process. And I love what Daniel said, that eternal life is being in relationship with an eternal being. And this is what the steadfast love, I think, is about and how we are part of this process. Mm. Yes, I like very much what you're saying, Livius, and I think I'm going to conclude along those lines. Before I do, let me just say one of the parts of this lesson that we didn't have time for was number six about Psalm 103. And a fascinating thing in Psalm 103 is it commands, bless the Lord. Now, blessing in the Hebrew context is often the conferral of stuff. You know, you bless somebody when you give them a gift. Parents bless their children when they buy them a car or give a down payment for a house, etc. How do you bless God when he's the source of all blessings? Whatever you would give to him is just giving back what he's already given to you. It's kind of like a husband and wife giving gifts to each other, but really it's just coming out of the same account, you know, uh, either way. So you said, well, how do you really bless someone in that way? And I think the answer is in the comments that have been made that it matters to God, that when we praise him, we're returning the blessing that he gave to us. So I think there is a sense that worship does matter to God, that it does complete the cycle. So I like the way that you said that. It's been mentioned that the definition of love, the New Testament definition of love is other-centeredness. In other words, your attention is somewhere other than yourself. It is so natural to focus on oneself. 
you and I are the center of our universe. We experience no other universe than the one that centers on our five senses, our eyes and our ears and our touch and our hearing, etc., our smell, taste. That's how we experience the universe. That's the only universe that we know. So selfishness is kind of natural, especially in the context of sin. But what worship does is focus our attention elsewhere. Worship draws us away from that natural focus on ourselves. Worship counters our own selfishness and enables us to love more deeply than we otherwise could. So as we worship God, we're also learning how to love. We're learning how to be other-centered, to place our attention beyond simply those things that entertain us or concern us. And it recalls to me Ellen White's great worship statement in Desire of Ages, page 83. It would be well for us to spend a thoughtful hour each day in contemplation of the life of Christ. We should take it point by point and let the imagination grasp each scene, especially the closing ones. What's she doing here? It's Psalm 136. It's recounting what God has done. God's greatest, mightiest act in the Old Testament was creation in the Exodus. In the New Testament perspective, it's the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. So it'd be well for us to worship by going over the life of Christ scene by scene, letting the imagination grasp the realities there, especially the closing ones. As we thus dwell upon his great sacrifice for us, our confidence in him will be more constant. Our love will be quickened. That's an old English word for made alive. Our love will come to life. We'll be more deeply imbued with his spirit. If we would be saved at last, we must learn the lesson of penitence and humiliation at the foot of the cross. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for the Psalms. We thank you for their heartfelt humanity, but also the picture of you that they provide for us. And as we frail humans reach out for something better, we are grateful that your steadfast love endures forever. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.